tonight on Arena. American Fiction, The Zone of Interest and Argyle are the movies up for review and John O'Brien on his Music Of series at Cork's Everyman Theatre. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and you can watch the live stream on RTE.ie forward slash Arena. And we start this evening as we often do on Thursdays, as we always do on Thursdays. In fact, I think it's safe to say with our film reviews, three brand new movies, two of which are in the running for Best Picture at this year's Oscars. American Fiction is a satire directed by Emmy Award-winning writer Cord Jefferson. It tells the story of Monk, a frustrated novelist and professor played by Jeffrey Wright he's fed up with the establishment profiting from and I have to use inverted commas if I can do so black entertainment and writes an outlandish stereotypically black book as a joke but when the book is published it becomes his greatest success Zone of Interest is a stark and chilling film that follows Rodolf Hess SS commander of the Auschwitz concentration camp his wife Hedwig and their five children as they enjoy a carefree idyllic life in their home beside the Auschwitz concentration camp directed by Jonathan Glazer it stars Christian Friedel and Sandra Huller and finally Argyle spy action and comedy directed by Matthew Vaughan who also directed the Kingsman films it tells the story of Ellie Conway played by Bryce Dallas Bryce Dallas Howard who is herself a successful spy novelist who soon realises the plot of her new book is not only closer to the truth than she intended but mirroring real world events in in real time. Imagine that happening in real life. I'm joined now in studio by Donald Clark and Arlene Hunt. And let's start with uh, American fiction. Quite a quite a, 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 a clever conceit, this particular one, Arlene. Very much so, very much so. And his send up of the publishing industry in particular is, is, is jo- I, fi- I found it joyful. I thought it was very, very funny. Because it is based on a book which does precisely it how, is, it's, it's, how and why is he sending up the publishing industry? It's, it's based on a book called Erasure by Percival Everett. And it's, it's so you have to understand who Thelonious, well, Thelonious Monk Ellison is, first of all. He's an incorrigible snob. He's a professor in a right-on West Coast uh, arts, art, liberal arts college. Um, he's been writing really, really worthy books mm. for quite some time, which haven't really sold very well. And so he sees a particular author uh, called Sinatra Golden. And <laughs> in this... Just What's f- the name of our book? <laughs> Wees Wees lives in the ghetto. Wees lives in the ghetto. In the, in the, but has in a the, wonderful the, moment where she's incredibly urbane she's and articulate. She's being interviewed on stage. <laughs> yeah. And I will say that about 95% of her audience is white women. Mm. Yeah. And she's being interviewed by a white woman on stage. And she's, as you say, she's very effusive. She's very well spoken. Very erudite. And then he, she comes to the moment where he says, please read from your, your new novel. And she <laughs> opens up the book and it's all, it's just like, yeah, it's just street There's speak. There's a wonderful shot where <laughs> Um, you see Monk's face and his face just falls at this kind of, you know, this sort of vulgar um, uh, stylized invention of of, uh, of urban patois and he looks at Paul and then this white woman stands up in front of him and basically, and basically she kind of she, But she obliterates him yes. you know, and it's yeah. that beautiful well, shot kind of patronising delight in yeah. her face And she's yeah. laughing and everyone's laughing, they're on their let feet us, Let us acknowledge the elephant in the room here that there are three white people talking about yeah. this particular <gasps> piece of work, but perhaps it's its aim is its aim, in fact, potentially uh, white people rather than black people. Well, it feels it's funny. It feels as if white pe- white viewers are being allowed access to a conversation that we wouldn't otherwise feel comfortable joining, yeah. I think. Um, it isn't really genuinely, as you suggest, John, not our business to tell black people if they're not, if they are or are not being black enough, which is the conversation that's being had here. So it is kind of informative and useful to have us to mm. be part of that conversation and see this being had by black writers and black filmmakers. Um, I, I thought it was terrific. I would say two things. But reservations, but qualifications. Interesting how we're all, we, we're already talking exclusively about the satirical element in this. And actually, if you watch the trailer, the trailer suggests really emphasises the satirical element, the element we've talked about mm. so far, the total exclusion of the family drama, which and is a fact, hugely important it's part about, of the story. Forty percent of the film. It yeah. is more about the family drama, about him dealing with his mother, who is um, what dementia, and him dealing with his errant brother, a terrific performance by Sterling K. Brown, um, who is. Uh, 
falling apart at the seams in a whole different way, uh, at, um, has various mm. substance abuse issues and so forth. It's as much about that as it is about the, the conversation we're having about the nature of, of, of black fiction. I would also say, I think the satire is a tiny bit dated. Um, in that what they're getting at here with um, this book that we've already discussed that he encounters at this at, at this reading is essentially we're, we're going back to that that that, that uh, addiction to misery porn yeah. from the early part of this century uh, and in particular in, in uh, African-American terms to Precious, that novel which became the mm. uh, Oscar-nominated film, um, which is 25 years ago. So I'm not entirely sure, I couldn't say for certain, but I'm not entirely sure that the, the Vogue that the, the Vogue that we're talking talking about here is still around the way that it was 20 years ago. Uh, and possibly that has to do with the fact that it's the adaptation of this It's novel. taken 20 yeah, years to come here. Yeah. No, that is not a serious complaint. Yeah. I just make that as a note yeah, along absolutely. the way. I love this film. I had a great time all the way through and found that stuff all yeah. very funny. But I'm not sure we're still satirising a current tr trend Fair enough. Fair enough. in literature. Let's listen to a clip from American Fiction. And this is... <laughs> This is the point at which he goes into a bookshop. Uh, Thelonious Ellison himself goes into the bookshop uh, and goes looking for his own books. And he finds them in the African-American studies section. Now, he does uh, translations of in Greek mythology. Of Greek mythology. Yeah. So he didn't expect to find himself in that particular part of the bookshop. Excuse me, uh, Ned, do you have any books by the writer Thelonious Ellison? Yeah, uh, this way. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. Ned, you don't make the rules. I'm just going to put them back after you leave. Don't you dare, Ned. Do not... You dare. And there he takes his books and he moves them down, of course, only to find a big raft of Sinatra gold. Yeah, the aforementioned yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Weas lives in the, in yes, the ghetto. Yes, yes. Her bestseller. It was a bestseller. <laughs> yeah. It was a bestseller. It was absolutely. But th I suppose there, there's also having a sideways stop at our swipe there. Not a sideways, it's full on swipe, really, isn't it? At chain stores as opposed to the local bookstore. Everybody's getting a whack here. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was even the fact that he didn't know how chain. Because as I said to you at the start, he's an incorrigible snob. He wouldn't know how a chain store works yeah. it just is part and parcel of who he is and but it's just his his rage and his impotency is is he's yeah. very quick to shelve it when money becomes involved because that's the whole what I thought was I loved the 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 crossroads he finds himself at whereas he is outraged he writes as Donald says he writes this terrible by, book by a, by a guy called Stag or Lee which is obviously <laughs> Stagger Lee yeah. Yeah. and he's drinking whiskey as he yeah. does it like you kind of think did nobody notice that? Yeah, and then, but it's not that. But they, they, what I loved his throwaway line when the, the the publishers came on board, and they're like, "We love it. It's such an authentic voice." <laughs> and then he's like, "Yes, it's going to go down really well in the Hamptons." You know, it's just, <laughs> but I quite like that they allow themselves to be quite broad yeah. at the time. I mean, it, it is a clever film. It's a very well written film, and also tremendously well acted film. But it also does allow itself to be quite broad in some of its humour. I like the fact that, for example, when he turns up. And they've asked him to rest street. His idea of street is chinos and a yeah. grey t-shirt from Very the gap. looking street. It's the closest thing that he, yeah. can, he can get to. Yeah. I, like, I, I like all that. It's also an interesting thing. It's an interesting companion piece to another film that's also nominated for Best Picture at uh, the upcoming Oscars. I mean, you can't... I couldn't in my head quite separate this from The Holdovers. Right, that, um, yeah. Which, again, is, is Paul Giamatti playing a grumpy professor who large, large parts of the film being set in Boston who comes to a kind of understanding through uh, his encounter with various crises with other people surrounding him. Though, there's, that's a more sentimental film. There's yes, more dramatic yeah. change in Giamatti's character. But it, it goes to kind of, you know, a caricature of... of 
of um, academia, which has been going around in novels for a hundred years. Yes, yeah, There's that's true. These, these like nominally successful people who are absolutely deeply unhappy and unsatisfied <laughs> with the world they're moving through. But uh, Don brought up the point earlier, Arlene, and I think it is worth pursuing it a, a, a bit further. There is a wonderful family story. Which, yes, very much so. has a little bit of gentle humour in it, but for the most part is incredibly sad. You see that, that it's wasted has, time, isn't it? It's yeah. waste, I fe- when I watched it, I felt that gap of wasted time because he's been on the West Coast for a long time teaching. And, and because of the man that he is and because of the stature in which he holds himself, you know, he feels a failure to a certain degree. And he feels because he comes from a family of doctors. Mm. Uh, he is he is a doctorate. He has a doctorate. He is a doctor, but you know he's not that kind of doctor, and that's obviously something that burns within him as well. And you know his father, and his sister, and the brother yeah, are quite close. They're very close he's because he was from that. well. He was always more similar to his father, and mm. and they make a, his sister makes a point of saying this to him that he he was the one who kept away from them. Not he wasn't pushed away. He kept himself away. And now they're at a stage in life where they must come together because the mother has, you know, she's in the throes of dementia. There's clearly things that need to be taken care of, financial things that need to be taken care of, physical things need to be taken care of. And for a man like Thelonious Monk, who can really just just about function himself on an adult human level, this is a bit of an eye opener for him because all of a sudden the the way in which he has always carried himself, it has to shift. It has to. Yeah, I'll be I'll be speaking with Carl Jefferson, the director tomorrow. And hopefully, we'll be broadcasting that uh, tomorrow night. All going well, but stars from you on this one, Arlene. I just loved it. I I gave a, a solid five. I loved it. A solid five. Solid five. Donald, I think you have few reservations. I, do four. I, I do also, but also, I think it loses its nerve a bit towards the end. There's a conversation with um, Issa Rae as the author where they kind of sit back having satirised this book and it becomes a bit let people enjoy things, mm. which um, I don't like people enjoying things, so I, I didn't <laughs> care for that. But I, I thought it was <laughs> like, I, still excellent. I, I, I'm, I, yeah, solid four. A solid four. And yeah. can, may people enjoy this? Yes, they may. They may. They may. They may. <laughs> you're, you're giving them yeah. permission. I, I won't enjoy them enjoying it, but I, but I will give them permission to do so. Okay, how very kind of you. <laughs> Let us move on then to uh, the zone of interest. Stark is one word. Chilling is another. This uh, film follows Rudolf Hess, SS commander of Auschwitz concentration camp. His wife Hedwig, their five children, as they live alongside um, Auschwitz, obviously and continue their life as if nothing is happening. It's directed by Jonathan Glazer, stars Christian Friedel and Sandra Huller. It, it's almost impossible, Donald, I suppose. You know, how do you approach the topic of the Holocaust? Mm. Uh, how do you go about saying something that is important enough uh, about such an, you know, huge event in history? That is always the first question that anybody who approaches this topic must address, I guess. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think anybody would blame Glazer of being irresponsible or disrespectful. Mm. I think it, um, so austere is his approach that it'd be hard to do. But you're right. I mean, there was that Tedor Adorn- Adorno line to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, which has been much debated yeah. as to what he actually meant, people perhaps taking it too explicitly and so forth. But certainly you get a sense with, um, with Glazer that he has worked incredibly. He talked about the notion that he was doing his best to make a film that was unauthored, that almost he was trying to create kind of a machine that would make the film for him, which he has done by an extraordinary method of uh, of, of shooting the film, which I was talking to Christian Friedel, uh, uh, who plays um, Huss in this a few weeks ago, and he was dumbfounded by what how this all worked. It, they essentially, I mean, Glazer did actually use the phrase, it's like Big Brother in Auschwitz, which sounds a bit disrespectful, but it gives an accurate description of how he shot it, which was he had ten, up to 10 cameras arranged about the house and gardens um, in various spots, anchored down, though they could be operated by the focus puller from the basement, and the cast moved through the house and into the garden continuously, so the scenes ran continuously, didn't have to cut from one room to another, or, didn't have to, or, or rather you could play it straight in that way, and then you could then cut it afterwards. So they didn't always know what camera they were playing to. Mm. They didn't know what shots were going to be used. They didn't know what was going to be cut out. They're even allowed to improvise to a certain extent. And that gives, that puts an, there are a lot of things that does to kind of emphasize this, to press on the seriousness of Glazer's approach. One of it being that it puts a good deal of distance between you and the characters. Yeah, so we don't get these, we don't get big close-ups. I mean, it's interesting that I I saw this um, at Cannes, 
uh, on the premiere. And eerily, it is nominally based on a Martin Amos uh, novel uh, of the same title. Well, actually, it's almost nothing to do with the Martin Amos novel. It's this, all it remains is the setting. The, mm. the Amos novel was set in the same environment uh, in uh, the House by Auschwitz. And I was about to go to the press conference and looked at my phone, and Martin Amos just died. He died the day that this film premiered, which kind of added kind of another kind of Letter. element of the macabre yeah. to this. Yeah. But um, it went on a quiet storm there and um, uh, and I'm impressed that it's ended up as a Best Picture nomination because brilliant as it is it is not the kind of film that would have got nominated 10 years ago Yeah and uh, Donald is telling us there and giving us a sense of the way the film is made which strikes me that what you're getting is almost a documentary style look at this Hess family uh, the husband and wife and, and, and the five children what sort of family are we presented with as we're watching them Arlene? So almost the opening scenes are them having a little picnic down by the river it's a beautiful day. It's sunny. It's warm. The, one of the kids is crying. The rest are swimming and playing with just five children. Um, he's there with his, you know, with some of the servants and his wife. And he's having a really good time with his family. He's presented as a very warm and loving family man. She's presented as his helpmeet, a very woman of the earth. You know, she's very involved in her garden. She's very involved in growing things. She's very involved in the development of her children. And she's very involved in farming because the movement of them to go to the villa right beside Auschwitz has, was something that they were promised by Herr Hitler himself. That they were, would, they would, their reward for their service would be to farm this land. So you get this weird, almost like a bucolic look at this family. And then in the frame at the back of their really luscious garden, you can see the, the, the wire on the top of the wall, the barbed wire on the top of the wall and the sound, it's the sound that builds up all yeah. the way through this film that's the most startling thing about it. Because on the one hand, you've got the river running, you've got, you know, birds tweeting, sunshine, blah, blah, blah. When you get back to the house, it's when you get back to the house on the bare boards of the house board when the windows are open. What you can hear in the background are the sounds of torture, death, uh, but brutality, but not no. It's always yeah. on the wind. It's always on that, the breeze. Right, that's right. Uh, shots, dogs barking, a, 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 a particular yeah. scream that's cut short, and it's only as it, as this film gradually moves along, then you get the real sense of like there's only a very a thin veil between this lifestyle that this woman and this man have created yeah. for their for their children and the absolute pure horror that's going on one stride beyond their uh, their gates, beyond their garden. Well, I think you made a good point, Arlene, about when you say that screams cut short, because I think the sound design, sound design is extraordinary. Um, I suppose it probably won't win the Oscar because Oppenheimer is going to win yeah. all those all those technical ones, but it should win the Oscar. And one of the things that, one of the things I find really impressive is the point you make is you have this sort of ambient confirmation of of uh, atrocity going on in the background, and it'll the film the, the the film will cut like sort of halfway through a scream yeah. or before a shot has had time to die out. Pressing home the matter of factness of how it That's seems so jarring to about those it. inside it's not, the it's house. Not, it's not like a, a theatre scream. Mm. It's it is the sound of pain. And then yeah. stop. And I guess in 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 some ways it's it's that old adage in film. It's what you don't see that is most frightening. It's yeah, the, we we don't get visuals, do we? Of, of the no, camp, or the, very the, little. No, but I mean, I, what, what you're kind of like referring to a certain extent towards how this is used in horror cinema to an yeah. extent, and you always do get to see. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or almost always do eventually get to see the shark in Jaws yeah, or whatever yeah. it might be. Whereas this is always kind of an ambient terror in the background that we don't quite connect with. I mean, it's it requires us. I would. I mean, I think we can safely assume that anyone going to see this film will know what went on there. Yeah. But it certainly requires you to have, have a knowledge. certain degree of knowledge of this, which I, I, I mean, I hope to goodness that we can expect that of people in this day and age. Yeah. But it requires that because if you didn't know what was going on, you would have no idea what this peculiar film was. Yeah, but I think and yeah, it, is, it is. It is, and, and what it's a film to a large extent about ordinariness, um, and that was something again that was very important uh, uh, to Glazer. That this family, it, what is horrific, mm. is their ordinariness in in the midst of all this extraordinary terror. And I guess um, the other point about it is you talk about this thin veil between their perfect life and what was going on in, in the camp beside them. There is a bigger metaphor there about the thin veil of what's going on today in all of our sure. ordinary because lives it's about, it's, all it's about, Because it's about the othering of people. And because there's a couple of lines, there's throwaway lines all the way through this film that are small lines that once you pick up on them, you can't not think about them thereafter. You know, like the mother saying to her, oh, I, I can't believe you have them in the house about the servants. Mm. And mm. her just casually going, oh, they're, they're, they're Polish, they're not Jewish. 
Mm-hmm. It's th- these little yeah. lines all the yeah. way peppered the whole way through. This and othering, German, constant othering. Yeah. Not, and it's in German, and it's, yeah. which makes yeah. the language harder on my ears anyway. And it's yeah. that othering the whole way. It's the whole way through whole the way film. Through but that's why we don't have any clips of it, obviously. Um, it seems <laughs> maybe in bad taste to ask about stars, but I'm sure I'm, I'm guessing this is a, a the top end of the rating. Yeah, for you, yeah, Arlene. I... I, I, I I would give it a 4.5 because I felt it jumped out of itself slightly towards the end. There's a scene toward the end which it moves from one area of where it has right. stayed all along and moves somewhere else. And I actually think it lost some of the... It didn't lose because the visualisation is so strong. But as we were talking earlier, you know, when you build that whole world... It's when you then you step out it. of it. It's it stay yeah. in it. So four and a half from you. What are you saying, Donald? I, I definitely give it five stars. I do. I do. I don't disagree with what Arlene says. I think there is a point towards the end when that you have this aesthetic that is created so perfectly in the way we've described. But you break out of it slightly in a way that I can understand. But it almost feels a bit of a shame that you've established yeah. that aesthetic so perfectly and you break it. But no, I think it, it'll be hard to see a film. Uh, beating it this year, bettering it this year. Bettering it this year, okay. They may beat it, but they may not better yes, it, right. to, to, to take your point. All right, um, let us move on then to our guy, very different to give a kettle of fish altogether. Spy action and a comedy tells us about Ellie Conway, who played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, and the character is herself a successful spy novelist. And shock horror, where did they come up with this idea? What she wrote in her book is actually happening on the screen in her real life, Arlene. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's prophecy. It's prophecy. It's prophecy in fiction form. Mm. So basically, Ali Conway is a successful, highly successful. She's about to start her fifth book um, and she has a huge draw. People love her. They come to her, her book readings dressed up as, as the characters from her book, which is the mm-hmm. main character is a, a, a spy detective called Argyle, who's played with rakish kind of charm here by Henry Cavill. And yeah, so basically, Ellie finishes her last book, sends it to her mother. This is the basic premise of the story. Finishes her last novel, sends it to her mother, who's obviously her first reader. Um, the mom comes back almost immediately. She's read the book in 24 hours and the mom has played by Catherine O'Hara. Comes back immediately, goes, says to her, this book is a cop-out. You need to write another chapter. And she's like, really? I have to write another chapter? Well, please, come come to where we where I live. Where, come to your family home and we'll brainstorm it. So Ellie gets onto a train with her cat, Alfie. Oh, God. And while she's on the train... Uh, a, a man, a kind of scruffy looking man, sits down opposite her, tells her he's a great fan of her books. Is this Sam Rockwell? Is yes, this, yeah, yeah. Aiden. Aiden. Yeah. Sits down opposite her, tells her he's a great fan of her books and tells her that actually her books are not just spy fiction books, but they are in fact prophecy and that may, many people are going to come to her and try to, I don't know, kidnap her, kill her, right. stab her or something. And he's there to protect her. And she obviously doesn't believe him because, you know, why would she? Why would she? <laughs> and then within four frames, you know, she's being attacked left, right, centre. And it's dun, 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 dun. It's let's, true. Let's listen to a clip. Um, she kind of takes her cat with her. Yes, Alfie <laughs> goes with her. Alfie goes Everywhere. with her. Um, Aidan played by Sam Rockwell. Ellie played by Bryce Dallas Howard. And questioning the presence of the feline creature on the train. Had to bring the cat. What did you expect me to do? Leave him to fend for himself? Come on. Be fine. Cat ladies always die alone. The cats figure it out. I am not a cat lady. I'm not. (sighs) And what's your problem with my cat? Exactly. He's really cute. He's cuddly. He's loyal. Please. You suddenly drop dead. That cat's chewing your ears off within 48 hours max. Which, with you around, gets more likely by the minute. Um, very catish, I have to say. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a CGI cat. It's a really CGI cat. It's a really CGI, CGI, CGI cat. It is the most... I'm wait. sorry, I have to say this because people might go to see this film for the... It's a CGI cat. It's yeah, a very we're, we're CGI cat. I'm always going to write lists in my profession of like, you know, best, best, this and that. If you're writing about worst cat in the film, I don't mean... And the, the cat's unpleasant. There's really, I mean, there's a real cat there somewhere. Somewhere, really yeah, now at and one then. point. But like for about 80% of the time, it is a CG cat. And, and it moves like a CG, CGI cat. terrible. So are there, I mean, there's an extraordinary cast here. Uh, yeah, he's the Michael winner of his day, isn't he? Matthew Vaughan. Um, Matthew Vaughan, the, same with Michael Matthew Winner, the director, yeah. Same with Michael Winner could drag in like, you know, Joanna Lumley and Roger Moore and everybody else. That who, so, who, who has uh, Vaughan managed with. to get in? Uh, oh, he's got in. He's got um, uh, Catherine, Catherine O'Hara, Ariana Ar- 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 
Bose, Samuel Jackson, Brian Cranston, Richard E. Grant, Sophia Botella, the leads you've already mentioned. Yeah, it is like it is like one of one, like one of Michael Winner's dinner parties. Look, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> I um, I do not like Matthew Vaughan's films. I did not care for the Kingsman films um, at all. I did not care for Kick Ass. Um, I find his kind of mannered, arch approach just irritating. Uh, even given the fact that the people at the James Bond Enterprise seem to refuse to give us another James Bond film. Is Henry Cavill given getting him given well, I, any I, chance? Well, actually, is, is that Cavill? No, is in this. I mean, when Roger Moore went into the James Bond thing, he really spent like the guts of a decade doing the Saint. People and I can even as a small kid, I started thinking like, but isn't he, but isn't he already James Bond in some sense? <laughs> Cavill's like Cavill's done about three films, which is Nerzatz, James Bond. He's done Man from Uncle. He's done a Mission Impossible film. Now he's done this. I mean, they can't make him Bond now. He's been Erzatz Bond for so long. He's already done the job. But I'm coming to a botch here after all this. But here it comes. I really enjoyed um, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard in this. And I enjoyed the relationship between Bryce Dallas Howard at, um, uh, uh, and, her, and her partner in this, um, Sam Rockwell. And she's a really charming actress. She's always had a great warmth to her. And I think that sort of slightly fussy warmth that she has when she plays as, as this author who's you know, yeah. um, lives this quiet life uh, tied away. Actually, it comes quite useful towards the end when right. she gets involved okay. with all the violence. And so in the end, I ended up really grudgingly, given how much I dislike how this, this man makes his films, sort of coming around to it. And, and now this just sounds like two things. First of all, you're not going to mind people enjoying this one and how many well. stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going for three. I'm going to give it two and a half. That's, that's as, far as, my, as far as my tolerance stretches. And may people enjoy this one? I, they may. They, they might well not. They, but it's also a grammatic thing. May and may and might. They might well not. But I suppose they may if they have to. <laughs> what well, what can I do about it? What are you saying? I'd say Arnie? stop using CGI animals in films unless you're really good at it. That's what I would say. And I'm giving it a two because I actually quite the uh, there's an ice skating scene that made me laugh out loud. Not because it was really brilliant, but because it was ludicrous, and I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, and the, the, the big musical number to. Um, to Leona Lewis's version of that Snow Patrol song is actually light kind up. of what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, uh, what's it called? Light up, light up. What's it called? It's called. Julie Leap is there. So does, she sing, does she sing? No. No. Oh Lord, no. She dances. She dances. She dances. Okay. Um, she doesn't dance right. in it though. Mm. You're nearly selling it now. The more you talk, the more, <laughs> the more you're suggesting we should go to see it. Uh, Argyle, the title of the third film that we spoke about there, and before that, the Zone of Interest and American Fiction, Arlene Hunt and Donald Clark, our reviewers on this Thursday evening. Now we go to uh, John O'Brien, who is in our Cork studio, and we are going to talk about John's upcoming series, Music of, a series of events and and curated events that John is uh, putting together for the Everyman Theatre in Cork, where he has used, I think it's safe to say, feelings as a way of guiding us through three evenings of music. Uh, John, lovely to have you with us, and I know also that Johnny's on the line is Nevo Nevo Sullivan, uh, who is one of the performers for the first of the three evenings that you have. I'm just going to call out these names to start out, John. Mendelssohn, uh, Debussy, um, The Abbey Reel in the New Courthouse, Cormac McCarthy, uh, Stephen Sondheim. So that's <laughs> just some of the composers that you featured in the first of these evenings. So you can't use uh, era as a defining quality here. You can't use composers as a defining quality. You can't use genre as a defining quality. What did you use, John? Um, good evening, Sean. How's it going? Um, yeah, it, it kind of started with a conversation um, about... Um, uh, yeah, about kind of uh, how, how I listen to music or, or how, you know... Um, like, you know the way when sometimes you go mm. into... into um, uh, an art gallery and everything is kind of there ap- according to the era and the thing and you know and there was a, a ph- philosopher um, Alain de Botan kind of suggested in one of his books that you know how about if there was um, an art gallery that grouped things by feelings or by emotions or by you know those kind of things so that was the kind of the start of this idea um, so um, that's what we've kind of come up with so we have um, this amazing quartet the Aura Quartet um, who are Shun Milne and Molly O'Shea on violin and Ali Comerford on viola and Isolt Cooper Stockdale on cello, so they're on all three of the concerts, mm. and then um, and 
that allows us to do kind of, you know, kind of classical repertoire like a bit of Debussy or a bit of Mendelssohn or, or you know, those kind of things. And then we have different guest artists across um, the three different concerts from v- various different genres. So we have an amazing um, opera singer, art singer like Neve. And we're kind of pairing her with Johnny McCarthy, the um, the trad player. Um, Molly Lynch, um, who is a brilliant um, West End uh, musical theatre star, mm. is kind of one of the guests in the second one. And we're pairing her with the um, French harpist, um, Anne-Marie Papin. And then on the third one, it's Karen Underwood, the soul singer. And we're pa- playing her, pairing, pairing her with the um, jazz drummer, Davy Ryan, and also with the quartet still, you know. And yeah. I might play a bit of piano as well on some of those ones oh, later on, enough. you know. Um, and what, yeah. what emotion then... It, 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 are we talking about for for evening number one, which is the well, one so that evening one, it, 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 it's sadness and comfort, mm. and the idea was like you know some of the best some of the best songs are sad songs, and sometimes um, yeah. So, so some of the sad songs that we have are some of the pieces mm. of music that we have are really sad. Like there's there's a piece that we're doing um, by Hindemith that was um, written in the, in the trenches in the First World War, um, and. You know, some of the, the slow airs that Johnny is playing that um, kind of have that feeling of like, you know, people emigrating or all of those kind of things. But then there's the kind of um, bam of maybe that might go into a little, mm. into a reel or, you know, or the fact that we're all in this um, space together in the theatre sharing this kind of feeling yeah. allows us to kind of, um, yeah, there's a comfort in, in hearing sadness and sharing it together, you know. Neva, it's a wonderful way, I, I think, to, to put together a, a playlist for, a, for an evening. I, I don't know about you, but when I'm listening to music, I don't necessarily say, well, I'm going to choose this one genre now and stick with it. I, I can flit around from from anywhere to anywhere else. It's about the mood. It's it, it's a wonderful idea. Have we got Neve there? Oh, it's for me. Oh, for oh, you, yeah, Neve. Sorry. sorry. Yeah. It's a funny. Sorry, it's for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is this is. Um, something totally different to what I've done before, you know, and even even kind of doing some time next to Hindemith, yeah. uh, you know, is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I think it's a gorgeous idea. John is always uh, someone who uh, kind of thinks outside the box and it's always something not not what you're expecting, yeah. like in the best way possible with John. So um, getting to share that with him for the first concert is going to be really special, I think. Yeah, because the Hindemith, the, the melancholy, his opus 13 is what you'll be, what you'll be singing there alongside the members of Aura and that's a I mean Hindemith is going to give you contemporary at times amelodic or certainly the melody can be hard to find uh, <laughs> within it all. I mean, it's a different it's a different type of feel to something like Send in the Clowns Sure, and like even so different to like Schumann or Brahms or something, yeah. you know, it's something very different to what I've done before. I haven't done much contemporary art songs. So, um, yeah, it's like a, a great challenge for me and also like so beautiful. I mean, the way he writes it, you know, it's so atmospheric, you know, one of one of the mo- movements refers to kind of weaving fog and you can like completely he- like hear yeah. that through. And with the with the string quartet, it's going to be very special. Uh, but they also, John mentioned there that you will be teamed up with uh, uh, the traditional artist, Johnny McCarthy, flute and fiddle accompaniment uh, will be what's involved in some of the pieces as well. Mixing where you're coming from, which essentially I suppose is a classical and an art song background into that traditional genre. How, how, uh, uh, how has that come across to you or what has it given to you in the performance of core repertoire, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've always been the singer who I, I've like, obviously, I'm a, I'm a classically trained, I'm an opera mm. singer, but I've always tried to kind of, you know, not stay so much in one genre. So for me, it's kind of feels, I mean, I don't feel completely at home with like, this is completely new for me, but also... It's it's something that's, you know, very exciting for me and something that I'd love to explore in the future, you know, like playing with a trad musician, singing with a trad musician. Um, and especially in one of the two arrangements that John has done of Sending the Clowns um, and the No One Is Alone from Into the Woods um, with the flute will just be like so gorgeous, you know, instead of I'm used to doing it, say, with just piano or something. So, um, yeah, that's really exciting for me. Well, let's have a listen to of you doing it, as you say, with just piano but it's it's not yeah. just it's not just it's your not voice. Just piano <laughs> it's not just exactly. piano, not at all. No, it this is a, it just gives us a sense of the beauty of the song itself. Let's have a listen. Yeah. It's, it's Gary Beecher, I think, is with with you on piano exactly. in, in this recording, Neve.
section there of Send in the Clowns and it was the voice of Neve Sullivan that we heard there accompanied by Gary Beecher on piano and that is one of the pieces that Neve will be performing as part of John O'Brien's Music of series in the case of this first evening that we're talking about music of sadness and comfort uh, uh, two things that have really struck me John uh, I'm so used to hearing it uh, that song with either the piano accompaniment like we just heard it there or indeed some kind of orchestral accompaniment you've rearranged this Neve was saying what kind of an arrangement have you done? Well, I, I, I just wrote a version for um, the string quartet and um, for Johnny to play then on a flute line with it as well, you know. Um, I must just say there, that was so beautiful, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> I was oh, just kind of carried you. away there. <laughs> it's really funny. I actually don't ever get to do a concert that I don't sing Send in the Clowns. I sing it at everything, no matter what. If it's like a le- uh, leader recital, I'll always finish with Send in the Clowns. So it's, um, yeah, it's just a special one for me, I feel like. And for you, John, and Neve has mentioned it there about that mix of the the trad and the and the classical. When when you put that trad flute in on top of the classical quartet, what new field or what new sound does that give to us? Well, it. I mean, Johnny is, a, is such a kind of a virtuoso. Like, mm. Johnny is a, an amazing classical flautist as well. So it's kind of, um, he's kind of also uh, standing across kind of um, multiple worlds, yeah. you know. Um, so it's more him as an artist coming together with it. Um, I'm not sure what he'll bring to it. We'll, we'll hear that on Sunday, you know. Um, that's the kind of exciting thing when you write an arrangement and you send it to people and then people come together and perform, you know. Um, sure. the, the other thing is uh, um, we have three nights of this so just give you the emotions for, for the next so well, the first one is co- so the first one and is sadness comfort. and comfort in February then on the 10th of March we have love and heartache and that's with Molly and, and so that's uh, um, a lot of there's a, a good bit more musical theatre mm. in that one but also kind of some French chansons and it, the, the idea is to kind of take uh, maybe the beginning of a relationship and then the middle when everything yeah. is going really well and then it all going bad and then you know um, and that's the kind of arc of that one and then the third one is in April it's towards the end of April on the 28th and that's with Karen Underwood and that one is called Faith and Doubt and that one is kind of all I suppose exploring um, everything from American spirituals to um, uh, yeah I suppose yeah. Lo- losing your b- belief and all of those kind of things and you know so that that's that one yeah yeah and you seem to give us two sides of the coin in each I think of the that's three the, evenings. that yeah. was the idea to <laughs> yeah. kind of um like with the first one that the sadness and the but but the, the comfort, comfort of it too well. and you know that um yeah just briefly the two of you are also working together um what's the upcoming production of Carmen a kind of it's it's a version of Carmen in some ways John isn't it it is yeah it's so it's called um la tragedy de Carmen and it's a a, a version that Peter Brook and Marius Constant. Um, so Peter Brook, the famous theatre director, and uh, uh, the composer, uh, French composer Marius Constant, made a new version of it. Um, and so it's kind of it's it's a seventy-five minute long version where um, it's really stripped back, and the main four. Um, 
characters are kind of thrown into this like mad dream state um, and it's much more um, violent and direct and you know they, so fight, it, they, they it, fight each other you know Is it totally new music or do we get some it, of the it, bees it, they it, work it's in there? all of the best it's all the tunes so all the, all <laughs> all the, the tunes, tunes are there um, but they're kind of a, a lot of them are in kind of a different context like so the, 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 the opera opens with a solo viola and then it ends at the very end with the timpani uh, but playing the habanera the bum but all right. bim, bim, you know. so all the kind of all the big tunes are there but, but yeah in a different order yeah it. and and in a kind of a really interesting order and in a like mm. um so uh uh, the, when Carmen fights at the beginning, it, she's fighting um, Michaela. Um, so Neve and uh, Kellyanne Masterson, who's playing Michaela, will have a great fight scene there, you know. And we're bringing in a fight choreographer for, uh, for for a bit of a, you know pulling hair and all of that, you know. Yeah, send in the fighters. I think it's great. Yeah, send in the fighters. I think it's great. It really. Um it kind of gets to the core of the story without all the kind of stuff, the other stuff, you know. Yeah. It's kind of um, more direct. Because yeah, it, it, it is a character you're familiar with, Neve, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been singing Carmen's arias for years and years and um, I've studied, like, most of mm. the role. Um, but this will be my first time doing it um, fully, the French the original French so yeah and and doing a fight at the beginning as well (laughs) looking forward to it three fascinating evenings when when will when will the when will the Carmen be happening Carmen is Valentine's night on the 14th of February in the in the Cork Opera House starting with a fight on Valentine's Valentine's (laughs) exactly (laughs) well I hope I hope things are resolved by the end Liz thanks to both of you for joining us this evening that's uh, John O'Brien and Neve O'Sullivan for Valentine's night if you're looking for the that version of Carmen but the Everyman presents music of February the 4th March the 10th and April the 28th and you can get multi-show bundles you can choose to go to all three and get a discounted version there but find out full details of all three of those music of events at everymancork.com Now without doubt Rough Magic are one of our most exciting theatre companies they have a big birthday next weekend founded 40 years ago during I think it's safe to say what we could call a golden age in Irish independent theatre Rough Magic have given us four decades of award winning shows and they've nurtured lots of new talent along the way the production you couldn't number them all off but among the highlights I think we would all agree are Copenhagen Improbable Frequency Solar Bones Shakespeare in the Castle Yard in Kilkenny and much more besides there will be a series of events of events to mark the anniversary headed up with a live arena Rough Magic special from the Project Arts Centre taking place next Friday February the 9th uh, in the theatre with us on the night will be Booker Prize winning writer Anne Enright, Irish Time Theatre Award winners Alwyn Rowe, uh, oh, I called him Alwyn last night as well, Owen Rowe and Eleanor Methven and writer and performer Arthur Radin. Many others will be there with us on the evening as well. You can join us here on RT Radio 1 for a night of performances and chat or you can come along to the arena show or any of the other weekend events. If you want to find out more, you can go to the Project website website which is projectartcenter.ie Fiona Benson is a forward prize winning poet who will be in Dublin this weekend at the Classics Now Festival. She's written three collections since her debut, Bright Travellers in 2014, but it is in her second and third books that she takes in on the world of Greek myth in her collection, Vertigo and Zeus. Uh, Zeus, King of the Gods, Vertigo and Ghost, I beg your pardon. Zeus, King of the Gods, cuts a modern predatory figure in a remarkable sequence of poems exploring the theme of violence against women and in her latest collection, Effect she reimagines the myth of the Minotaur from uh, the, I suppose, the point of view of Pacify, the mother of the Minotaur. I'm delighted to be joined by Fiona Benson, who's in Devon on this Thursday evening. Let's just start straight away with uh, a, a, the opening poem, Days I Talked with Zeus, the sort of things you might get up to if you're a poet, I suppose, having a bit of a chat with Zeus. Would you read a, a little bit of that from the sequence of In Vertigo and Ghost for us, Fiona? Of course, John. Zeus. Days I talked with Zeus. I ate only ice. Felt the blood trouble and burn under my skin. Found blisters on the soft parts of my body. Bulletproof glass and a speakerphone between us. 
and still I wasn't safe. Thunder moved in my brain, tissue crease, hemorrhage. I kept the dictaphone running. It recorded nothing but my own voice, vulcanized and screaming, you won't get away with this. Fiona Benson there with her poem Days I Talked With Use from her collection Vertigo and Ghost. Um, I I mentioned in the introduction, Fiona, that your first collection was Bright Travellers 2014, but it was in the second and the third books that you started moving towards Greek myth. Did you find yourself nudging towards it or did it grab you by the neck and pull you in in a way that you just couldn't refuse? It did grab me by the neck. I'm afraid Zeus grabbed me by the neck. <laughs> Pulled me down several tunnels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he, I, he's not the um, he's not the most polite of men. Let's be honest. And without uh, being no. a, in any way flippant or joking about it, you address that violence, uh, particularly on the part of. I mean, obviously, it's a Greek myth and it's a god. But you're you're looking very specifically at that in a very modern context. It strikes me. Yeah. So. Um, Zeus became a way to talk about um, a relationship that I'd experienced that was abusive and that I'd been approaching in my notebooks in lots of different ways. And then one night I just tried it as if this person were Zeus and uh, wrote a chain of poems about that relationship that used him as a way of exploring it. And then it proved... It proved very capacious. It meant I could talk about lots of other things that were happening in society around me, violence towards women, reframed with Zeus as the abuser. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, what strikes, what, what I wondered about is, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, of one of the poems in the book that begins with the line, rape is rarely what you think. To what extent did exploring these very contemporary themes, and rape is not just a contemporary thing, obviously, but exploring these very contemporary situations um, through the, the prism of myth, did it allow you to kind of maybe go places that you would you couldn't go if it was more on the nose, more direct in terms of contemporary commentary? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think um, myths are really interesting to use because they give you certain tools that you can handle hot subjects with. They're like a kind of forceps mm-hmm. you can pick it up with. But also they're really interesting because you you know the myth in some ways. So there's this, these moments of recognition when you're rewriting things as a myth. So there's certain things you recognise, but there are also differences. And I think that can be really playful, that kind of uh, rubbing up of ancient myths and contemporary experience, I think can be a really interesting and productive meeting. There's one, uh, one section uh, within Vertigo and Ghost that I'd like you to read that speaks so directly to recent events in this country um, it's, a, it's a piece called Not Zeus Medusa 2 will you read that particular section for us and people will know exactly what I'm talking about the references when you, when you read for us yeah, I'll just I'll just give a little bit of context, which sure. is that I had I had known um, about Medusa as a snake-headed woman that turned men to stone, but I hadn't known the rest of her story, which was that um, she was raped by Poseidon in the Temple of Athena, and then Athena punishes the girl. She doesn't punish Poseidon, the rapist. She punishes the girl and gives her these kind of cursed snakes on her head. And I found that uh, really interesting, but also. Um, really, it really spoke to me about the way in which women are blamed and punished um, for uh, sexual activity or becoming pregnant in society. So this is the second section. This is not Zeus, Medusa too. Shunned girls sent to the Magdalene laundries, their milk coming in, newly stitched. They will wash soiled sheets till their chapped hands bleed in the lie, till their backs are deformed, till their hair turns white. The priest will tell them they're the devil's own whores, that he's all around them hissing in their ears. Meanwhile, the nuns will take their soft little babes and bury them, the soft of them the down of them in unmarked graves. 
That is the poem Not's Use Medusa 2 from Vertigo and Ghost collection from Fiona Benson who's speaking with me this evening ahead of her appearance at this year's Classics Now Festival. I want to touch uh, briefly before we finish if I can Fiona on Ephemeron uh, the collection which as I say tells this kind of the myth of Minotaur from the point of view if I'm not oversimplifying it of Pacify his his mother and there's a there's an epigraph two epigraphs at the beginning of of, of, of this collection or the sequence of poems uh, one of them quoting Aristotle about uh, deformity in children and how what, what it is says as to the exposure of children let there be a law that no deformed child shall live which is chilling when you read it. Uh, before that, there's another uh, from a law of Solon in, in Athens in the 6th century, which was basically blaming the woman for everything that goes wrong. The man has nothing got to do with it, uh, to paraphrase it simplistically. Why the point of view of Pasiphaea, the mother of the Minotaur, in this particular uh, sequence? I think she's fascinating. She's remembered mostly for transgressive desire, for sleeping with a bull and giving birth to the Minotaur. But actually, she's at the centre of all these amazing relationships and myths. So she's sister to Circe. She's mother of Ariadne and Phaedra. And these are all names we know from the myths. Um, I was drawn to her because I wanted to think of her as a mother and as somebody who kept her child even though he didn't fit into societal norms so ancient Greece their attitude to disabled children was quite varied but one of the practices was to expose disabled children um, to let them die out in the open Um, so I imagine that she brings up this disabled child and he's seen in, in the sequence through many lenses through people that love him but also through people who do not know him and see him as monstrous yeah, and and we see him also through the eyes of his sister. Ariadne is the sister, isn't she? That's right. Yeah. So she's in the traditional myth. She's the one that gives the ball of wool to Theseus so that he can find his way in and out of the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur. But in my version, the Minotaur is her brother, Asterios, and he's disabled and he's shut up in the labyrinth. And this is a kind of mercy killing because he is so desperately depressed and unhappy. Well, it is fascinating stuff and much to be read in those uh, two collections and I'm sure the third as well. And I'm sure you'll be discussing them at, at further length on Saturday evening. Thanks for being with us this evening, Fiona. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Fiona Benson. And the Classics Now Festival in Dublin is this Saturday. She'll be talking in an event uh, called Conversations About Love, chaired by Paula Shields. It's at 3pm in the National Concert Hall. Full details on Classics Now. .ie. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Uh, Neil Fitzmaurice was the researcher. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby. I will be back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.